So the title of the sermon is, Hello, My Name is King David. It's complicated. I don't know if it still is, but that phrase, it's complicated, used to be one of those options for how you defined a relationship on social media. It's complicated. The reality, of course, is all relationships are complicated. All people are complicated. Our passage this morning, these two scriptures from 2 Samuel, are about King David. The shepherd boy whom God anointed to be king over all Israel. Scripture tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. But he was complicated. And his story is complicated. David is mentioned more times in the Old Testament than any other human. Two stories probably come to your mind immediately. You heard about these stories in the children's sermon. You remember that with God's help, David, the humble shepherd boy, defeats the Philistine giant Goliath. You might also remember that story of David when he was later king, having an affair with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his army officers. You may remember that as that story goes on, David tries to cover up his actions, and he goes so far as to kill that officer, to have that officer killed. David is the king that unifies the southern and northern kingdoms of Judah and Israel into one united monarchy. But it is also David who turns a blind eye when his son commits rape. David is called in scripture a man after God's own heart, but his story is complicated. This is how one commentator puts it. I like this line. If God can work through David, God can work through anybody. It's a reminder of just how complicated this story is when we pay attention to all its parts. And at first glance, the story of David uniting the monarchy and bringing the ark to Jerusalem seems like a story full of joy and celebration. And indeed it was. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might. That line comes from our scripture for today. But there also could be more to this story. It could be complicated. When chapter 6 of 2 Samuel opens, we're told that David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. This line makes us think that another battle is about to begin. Because if you go back and read through 2 Samuel, that's what's been happening. The previous chapter, for instance, describes two battles against the Philistines. But here in chapter 6, David wasn't gathering those 30,000 men for another conflict. But he's gathering them for a celebration. He's gathering them for a victory parade of sorts, a triumphal procession. You see, many years before, the Philistines had captured the Ark of God. 
they had captured the Ark of the Covenant. But it didn't go well for them. Because everywhere that they took the Ark, it cursed them and finally they gave it back. (laughs) We don't want this anymore. They returned it. But the Ark, even after it was returned, didn't get the attention that it deserved. One biblical scholar likes to say that it was put in dry storage. It was forgotten. But this was a new time. It was a new season under David's leadership. David, at this point, was already the ruler of the southern kingdom. And as we read in chapter 5, the northern tribes of Israel want to make David their king as well. Israel, in other words, is on the cusp of unification, a united monarchy under David's rule. And there's this pivotal moment, no doubt, where David, as a savvy leader, wants to make the most of this moment, of this transition. And so David decides to march the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And when we read this story, we have to admit that there probably is political savvy behind this. It is in part a political move. Bringing the ark into Jerusalem was meant to symbolize that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, was legitimizing David's political, military, and even religious authority. That he was God's chosen king. Bringing the ark not only solidified David as king, but bringing the ark into Jerusalem also helped to solidify Jerusalem as the holy city. So it was not only a political move, but a religious one. It was the decision of a shrewd, sophisticated, savvy king. But even as we consider those motivations, we have to ask ourselves this question. But is there still more happening here? Is it even more complicated. Pay attention to the imagery of chapter 6, that passage that I read earlier. Because the way that David is described in this passage is not a cold, calculated king. David is emotional. He's joyful, enthusiastic, passionate. There's nothing in this passage to make us think that this is simply a political act from a savvy king. There's more happening. In fact, the rest of David's story helps to emphasize his religious fervor and his passion. Just read through the Psalms, which, as I said earlier, are attributed to David. We've been saying and singing those Psalms this morning, and we can hear that they are full of passion and conviction. And so in this passage, David and the people sing and they make music together and they dance. Many scholars have noted how the act of dancing would have been a complete abandon of all decorum expected of a king. David must dance like I dance, I guess. (laughs) 
All decorum is gone. But David doesn't care. King David sings and plays and dances before the Lord. This was a moment worth celebrating. The two kingdoms coming together under one united monarchy. It was a moment worth celebrating. And David couldn't help himself. Something new was happening. Something exciting was taking place. And here was a chance to mark it with this amazing moment. A victory parade for the Lord of hosts. And so David gets caught up in the moment. He gets caught up in the moment and he dances before the Lord. Have you ever seen someone get caught up in the moment? Like the NCAA basketball coach who tore his Achilles celebrating his son's winning tournament shot. Have you heard that story before? His son hits the winning bucket. The coach jumps up to celebrate and tears his Achilles. He gets caught up in the moment. Or NFL players who have ended up on the injured reserve list for weeks after celebrating a score or a touchdown. Or South Carolina's coach Beamer. Do you know the story I'm about to tell? Who got caught up in the emotions of losing a hard-fought game to Florida last week and broke his foot in post-game frustration. I want to read you part of his interview. It was too good not to share. This is what he said in the interview. I was frustrated and kicked something I shouldn't have kicked. And I thought that I was okay, and then the adrenaline of the game wore off. Now, before anyone starts the narrative like the head football coach is frustrated and lost his poise and all that, no, I care. I care about these kids, and I was really upset on Saturday night because I didn't do enough to help them get over the hump and win that football game. It's like I told the players, I don't condone it. And not saying it's okay, I'm not saying it's okay to kick things after the game. And I feel bad as a dad. My kids saw me and they were like, what the heck, dad? <laughs> so lesson learned, stupid on my part. Coach Beamer was making fun of himself. He said later in the interview that he listed himself probable for the next game. <laughs> we can get caught up in the moment in positive or negative ways, in po with positive emotions or negative ones. When that happens, like it did with Beamer, we drop our, our decorum, right? We forget about our position or reputation. And when we read 2 Samuel chapter 6, I think something similar is being described as David welcomes the Ark of Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant, into Jerusalem. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Have you ever got caught up in the moment? Have you ever got caught up in the moment? Maybe some unexpected good news 
has brought you to tears in a place and time when maybe tears aren't socially acceptable. Or maybe a rush of gratefulness or joy has overtaken you in an ordinary moment. Like watching your child learn to ride his bike. Watching your grandchild write his or her name for the first time. Listening to a grown child talk about a new job. You get caught up in the moment and your heart swells with excitement or pride or love. As I think about this passage, I wonder if this is what makes David a man after God's own heart. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that David wasn't afraid to let his heart swell. Maybe it's that David wasn't afraid to get caught up in the moment. Even if it meant throwing down kingly vestments so that he could dance unobstructed and unhindered. Some called it inappropriate, uncalled for. Actually, later in, one ch- in the chapter, one of David's critics says this sarcastically. This comes from later in chapter 6. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, maids, as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. The message translation I like even more. It makes it even clearer. How wonderfully the king has distinguished himself today, exposing himself to the eyes of the servants' maids like some burlesque street dancer. (laughs) David got caught up in the moment. And David at that point wasn't the king anymore. Maybe he was just at that moment a shepherd boy reunited with his instruments. In fact, David responds to that sarcastic criticism this way. In God's presence, I'll dance all I want. Oh yes, I'll dance to God's glory more recklessly even than this. And as far as I'm concerned, I'll gladly look like a fool. Do you ever let the moment overtake you? Do you allow your heart to swell? Or are you always controlled, always appropriate, always gathered? But Jesus wasn't. The connections between David and Jesus are enumerated throughout the New Testament. And one character trait that they definitely had in common is they weren't afraid to get caught up in the moment. And so when an injured man approaches Jesus on the Sabbath, Jesus thought, Jesus, although it was against the religious law and knew that it would get him in serious trouble, Jesus doesn't hesitate. He heals the man. And when Jesus encountered an unclean leper, he gets caught up in the moment. He does what he's not supposed to do. He touches the man and he heals him. And I could go on and on and on from the Gospels. Consider as another example, Jesus' words in the garden in Luke's Gospel. Just before his death, Jesus gets caught up in the moment. And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
And later on the cross, Jesus says this, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus lived in the moment. Let me just say that Jesus was not the felt bored stoic we sometimes make him out to be. He got caught up in the moment. In the face of pain, Jesus is moved. In the face of joy, Jesus celebrates. In the face of grief, Jesus weeps. In the face of injustice, Jesus is consumed with angry passion and throws tables around. Jesus lived in the moment. He let his heart swell. Do you ever let the moment overtake you? Do you allow your heart to swell? Or are you always controlled, always appropriate, always gathered? My friends, hear this good news. In the Christ who mourns loss, God grieves with you. In Christ whose heart is wrenched by suffering and injustice, God cries with you. In Christ crucified on a cross, God bleeds with you. In the resurrected Christ, God celebrates with you. When you break out an impromptu dance in your kitchen, when your child finally understands subtraction, God dances with you. When you forget where you are and scream in celebration at your office desk, when the test results come back clear, God screams with joy with you. No moment is too big or too small. God wants to get caught up in the moment with you. Let your heart swell. Don't let the moment pass you by. Feel it, good or bad. Don't be afraid to let it overtake you. And then know that God is in the moment with you. King David dances when the ark is brought into Jerusalem. The ark that represented God's presence is taken to the center of the city. In success or in failure, in joy or in sorrow, may we escort, may we parade, may we take God to the center of our lives, the center of our homes, the center of our hearts, because God is with us in every moment. And as our hearts swell in moments of pride or disappointment, in moments of anger or love, in heartache or in celebration, may we remember, may we be encouraged, may we hear the good news and believe it. God is in the center of it all. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, you want to live life with us. You want to grieve with us and you want to celebrate with us. You are moved by our excitement and you are moved by our heartache. You aren't unaffected or uninvested in our lives. And God, you want us to be moved as well. 
You want us to be moved with compassion when the world needs our action. You want us to be moved with joy when love overcomes hate. You want us to be moved with kind-heartedness when someone close to us is hurting of heart. And so we pray, push us out of apathy. Push us out of stoicism. Pull us towards yourself towards loving, steadfast compassion and grace and mercy. And so we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.